And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is the travel show in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be discussing travel. And that's a conversation uh, that we hope you'll have with us in many forms, not just on radio. We hope you'll come visit us at Fromers.com. That's F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S. That is our website. We put up articles there daily. There are articles on travel, on cuisine, on culture, on history. We just try and make it a really fun interesting, mind-expanding time at our website, Fromers.com. We also do that on social media, so we hope you'll follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Pinterest, and on Facebook. You just have to look for the word Fromers in those places, too. So, one of the things that we do beyond the website, beyond the radio show, is we do a lot of books. The Fromer Guide Books is what, Dad, that's what you founded in 1957. And we have uh, expert authors all over the world writing those books for us. I live in New York City, and so I write the New York City book. We, all of our writers are locally based. And it's been interesting. In the news, there's been this drumbeat that personally angers me as a long-term resident of New York. There's this idea that's being floated in the media that New York City is gone, that it's over, that it's dangerous, that it's dirty. And yet those of us who are living here are finding that that's not the case at all. Yes, there are problems throughout the United States, but New York City is still an extraordinary place to visit. Wouldn't you agree, Dad? I completely agree, Polly, that I love living here. I'm constantly surprised to learn of people who are living, who are leaving, rather, uh, New York City. And they are making a big mistake. There's no city on earth like this city. I think so, too. And I felt that especially this past weekend when I was one of the several hundred New Yorkers who went back to the Metropolitan Museum. The really great thing that's happened uh, in recent days in New York City, and I'll say we're, we're taping this about two weeks before you're hearing it, but the great thing is our wonderful museums are reopening. Yes, they're reopening with changes. They're only accepting 25% of the usual number of visitors, uh, which I think is kind of great. It meant that the I was in many galleries almost alone, and I was able to get up close to works that usually have huge crowds around them. Uh, as well, people have to wear masks. There are capacity limits. Um, and strange things, you know, for example, for the Metropolitan, you have to make a reservation now to go uh, because they, to keep the numbers at 25% of the capacity of the museum, they have to know who is showing up. So I, I made the reservation a day in advance. I got the time that I wanted. 
And then I showed up at the Metropolitan Museum and there was a line three blocks long to get in. I couldn't believe it. But luckily for me, I was on a bike. So I asked one of the guards, where can I park my bike? And she said, oh, we have uh, that set up in the parking garage. So just go to 81st Street, go into the garage. So I, I biked over to the garage, biked inside, set up my bike, and I looked back and realized there was a secret entrance in the parking garage that nobody knew about. I would have had to wait like 45 minutes outside on the street, but I was able to walk right in. Uh, there was no line at all inside the parking garage. So I went in, they took my temperature, I got my ticket, and I went to what I think was maybe one of the best museum exhibitions I've ever been in. The crazy thing is 2020, it's been a terrible year for many, many reasons. It's also, however, the 150th anniversary or birthday of the Metropolitan Museum. So they had in January and February launched these spectacular shows about their history, about new art that they wanted to show, uh, about so many different things. And nobody came because nobody could. The, the museum was closed until recently. So I went to a show called uh, The Making of the Met, 1870 to 2020. And it was about the people who created the Metropolitan Museum. When the museum was founded, it was founded just by a group of local citizens who had no art, who had no building, they just felt that New York was such a great town, it should have an encyclopedic museum. And luckily, these were people with persuasive powers. And New York City, then and now, was home to some of the wealthiest people on earth. And it, it stroked their egos to donate these incredible treasures to the museum. They would often put these people like J. Pierpont Morgan on the board of the museum so that he would then leave his collection to the museum. When they first started, they felt that American art was kind of shabby, was not something anybody should actually collect. That changed pretty quickly, but that for the first two years or so, and then they started getting gifts of art. Eventually, Ollie, could you could you just for a moment remind yeah. us once again of the year in which all of this took place? This started in 1870. So in 1870, they felt that American art wasn't worth collecting. They started getting gifts of it. And then as more and more immigrants came into New York, they thought, oh, maybe American art could have a purpose. Maybe we could, quote unquote, Americanize these newcomers by showing American art. And so they, they started collecting American art. They also started funding archeological expeditions. And that's, that's kind of a, a controversial part of the museum's past because there's a lot of people who feel that encyclopedic museums like the Metropolitan Museum have a fundamental problem in that they're showing great pieces from other cultures and maybe those pieces should be in Egypt, should be in France, should be in Turkey or wherever that piece is from. Uh, so this exhibition 
introduces you to all of these different conversations that went on as the museum was being created. And it's absolutely a fascinating exhibition for that reason, but also because in one exhibition, they show pretty much, not all, but many of the museum's greatest treasures. They're all within a couple of rooms. So to your left, there's a famous Rembrandt. In front of you, there is that fabulous portrait of Madame X by John Singer Sargent. It's the woman with the sharp profile in a very sexy, seductive black dress that he felt was his best piece. There's Pablo Picasso's portrait of Gertrude Stein that Gertrude Stein had actually given to the Metropolitan. And then the Metropolitan at a certain point thought, oh, maybe we should let the Museum of Modern Art do modern work. And they gave it to MoMA. Uh, Alice B. Toklas said, hey, what are you doing? Gertrude gave this to the Met. You'd better get this back or we're going to take it back. Uh, so you learn all of these interesting stories about the Metropolitan. As well, the museum, like many cultural institutions, is trying to be more diverse. And so they are showing more works by female artists. They're showing more works either by people of color or portraying people of color. There's this gorgeous area called the Petri Sculpture Court, which uh, until recently just had these big white marble statues of Greek mythology, figures from Greek mythology. And now they have this striking uh, bust of a woman done in the uh, 1800s of an African woman. Now it has a European sculpture, a sculptor, but the, the portrait is very clearly an indictment of slavery. And it is in there with next to all of these figures. So it was the first time that I spent three hours in a mask and didn't even remember I was wearing a mask. I was, I was just so enthralled by what I saw at the museum uh, and being able to see it with no crowds uh, going from place to place. There's also this spectacular new area about English uh, decorative arts. And one room is all teapots. <laughs> and they talk about how tea was such an important part of English history and shows so many threads in that history because the English didn't drink tea until they invaded um, uh, India and other parts of the world that drank tea. And then that became a very English and very upper class thing to do. And people would make these elaborate teapots uh, which kind of were the fad item of uh, the 1700s. So an absolutely spectacular time to go to the Met. I was also going to talk about the great uh, places I've eaten. We'll have to do that at the end of this hour. I'm looking at the clock. We have to take our first break, but we will be right back after these messages. So don't turn that dial.
Welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my father, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, we have Jason Cochran. He is the editor-in-chief of Fromers.com. And I invited him on because he's been writing a lot recently about hotels and how staying in hotels has changed. Welcome back to the Travel Show, Jason. Thanks, Pauline. Hi. Hi. So (laughs) you say that... Staying in hotels has changed. And let me say that if you want to read these types of articles, and we we hope you do, you like the show, you'll like our articles even more, you can sign up for the Fromers.com newsletter. It's absolutely free. Visit us at Fromers.com for that. Okay, now that I've gotten that out of the way, (laughs) how how is staying at hotels different nowadays? Well, there's the obvious ways, I think, to begin with, which is everything is much cleaner, obviously. You'll go into the front desk and there'll be one of those plastic sheets and the clerk will be behind it. You know, I think we're all used to that at the grocery store and stuff now. That's that's happening at hotels, too. Um, but other little things are happening now. For example, most hotels aren't giving you housekeeping service every single day. Hmm. You either have to request it or they're just going to stay out of your room until you're gone for safety's sake. Sure. So that's something to consider. And you might want to bring a couple of your own supplies if that's important to you and you want to keep things fresh during your stay. So that's like super what? important. Well, you know, well, uh, sanitary wipes, for example. Oh, okay. You want to have Clorox wipes. You want to, you know, you want to freshen up your room in any way. Some people have even brought dustbusters. I'm not that crazy, but, you know, <laughs> wow. basically you should be prepared to take care of it on your own uh, sure. right, without having to bring them in. Yeah. So that's a super important thing that's happening right now. The most important thing, though, I've noticed is that everyone who goes to a hotel these days as a customer tends to sort of stay on property most of the time. This is there's a couple of reasons for this. One is people are anxious about going out, but more importantly, a lot of attractions are still closed. A lot of restaurants are still closed. Depending on the state you're going to, the hotel may be the only thing there is to do. So uh. especially in warm locations, um, you know, in the summertime, that's happening a lot. People are breaking their their isolations at home. They say, "I'm going to go to a." hotel that has a great pool and get out of Dodge. And then they get to the hotel and they stay there. So the pools are a lot more crowded than they used to be. Now, most hotels are socially distancing people right. at the pool, but you'll find it's a lot harder to get a, an empty lounger than it was huh. a year or so ago, simply because the hotel is now the destination for yeah. a lot of people. So and I've s- not s- found any situation where I was uncomfortable, but it's something that people don't expect. They go, this hotel's so busy. A lot of hotels are still only booking 70% or so. A lot of them aren't filling every room, but they feel busier because people aren't doing the things they used to do. Right. We are speaking with Jason Cochran. He is the editor-in-chief of Fromers.com. You can read his articles on hotel stays there, or as I said earlier, subscribe to our newsletter. When I was in Michigan recently, I went to a hotel that actually had a lot of things open. They had reopened their spa. Uh, they had outdoor restaurants but that's not always the case. Sometimes the things that you go to a hotel for, uh, say the buffet breakfast or the spa or a fancy restaurant, those won't be operational, right? And let me just remind, let me say that we are taping this in late August. We tape this show ahead so we know that things may change. So sorry, Jason. Well, I think it's still good good advice. You need to check ahead to see what's open because it's not, Every every region of the country has its own rules, and also every chain of hotels has their own rules. So if you, there's a place that has a spa that you love, 
or you know, you were hoping on playing in the fitness room because you've been there before, you need to double check that it's even open because it won't necessarily be. For this reason, <clears throat> right now, I'm suggesting that people aim for the cheaper hotels. <clears throat> First of all, they're the first ones to open up, the luxury hotels, right. because there's so many moving parts, have been coming online a little bit later than all the other ones. But also cheaper hotels have fewer amenities that you're, you're going to be missing out on. You know, there are fewer spas at a Best Western. Best Westerns are most likely to be open, and that level of hotel are, are already sort of going, and you can get yeah. your money's worth at those for now. But there, don't there change your hotel a, by its amenities. Yeah. There recently was an article in the Washington Post about the fact that motels are booming, that hotels are doing badly, but single-story motels where you don't have to go through a lobby or up and down an elevator, yep. that's where everybody wants to stay right now. And you're probably going to be in your room more than you normally used to be if you're not at the pool or if you're at a destination where the pool is not the point. So make sure the rooms are nice um, yeah. since you don't have all these other amenities to go do. The restaurant may be closed or you may be socially distanced and you can't get a seat. So just make sure you're happy with the size of the room because that's going to be your home base most likely. And also you might want to consider bringing some food. People uh -huh. have been doing that because the restaurant options have been limited in some ways in some places. Yeah. Make sure you've got enough to, to snack on if uh, those if it does happen to you in, in the destination that you're in. Now, I'm saying this because I, I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Does this mean you should book directly with the hotel or go through a site like Hotels.com, Expedia.com? Yeah. <clears throat> What's the advice? My advice right now is to go directly to the hotel. Um, no, there's nothing wrong with these third-party sites. I just think that in this moment, when we need direct accountability, if you need to cancel, it's just much easier to handle a cancellation directly with the hotel than it is to go through, you know, the game of telephone. That's my own personal opinion. In the beginning of the pandemic, it was much more important to go straight to the hotel because these third-party sites were sometimes showing places that open as open when they weren't yet, and they would just direct right. you to another hotel. So you know the hotel is open as well if you book directly. It's easier to cancel. It's easier to rack up points. I'm personally a, a fan of going directly. And a lot of hotel sites already offer you the lowest price to begin with uh -huh. and will match often a lower price if you've seen it on Expedia. So um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a higher price. If you see the price lower, don't be afraid to tell that hotel, I saw this price lower somewhere else. Hey, there's another thing I want to mention. You must remember to download any app that the hotel chain puts out. Right. Because a lot of these corporate chains are now leaning on technology. They may want you to check in using your phone. They may offer wireless room keys. You just hover your phone in front of the doorknob and it unlatches for you. You have to have their apps in order to do that. And so, so many of them are, are really putting those online at a much faster rate than they were before this began. So have it with you and be ready and be charged up. Yeah, it's fascinating what they're doing. At the resort, one of the resorts I stayed at in Michigan, your temperature was taken as you entered. Uh, and then they also knew who you were and what time you were there in case they had to track you. In case somebody else in the mm -hmm. lobby turned out to have COVID, they would be able to find you and let you know and warn you. A fascinating time. As we were saying earlier, please visit us on Fromers.com. Please sign up for the newsletter. Uh, that's how you'll get information like this and like uh, is info on history, cuisine, culture, you name it. Okay, we have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Thanks, Jason.
You're listening to the Fromer Travel Show. And up next, we have Thomas Farley back. Uh, He's one of our favorite guests. You may know him as Mr. Manners. He's on the Today Show all the time talking about etiquette. He also has his own website. Thomas, what am I missing? What what would be polite to mention at this point? (laughs) (laughs) More than enough, Pauline. You're so kind to ask. But the, the podcast has been my big focus. Uh, during the pandemic, for sure. But uh, but that, if people are interested in the What Manners Most podcast, to, to learn more, and I'd love them to tune in. Okay, terrific. So uh, for our radio audience and our podcast audience, this this is for both. What is the biggest manners issue when it comes to travel during the pandemic? Do you think? You know, Pauline, I've got to tell you, I think people, for obvious reasons, are feeling quite stir-crazy. Many of us have been cooped up for months, not just in our home cities, but uh, in our apartments and in our homes. Mm -hmm. So I think for anyone with wanderlust, um, there's a great story in the New York Times a week and a half ago about how people's social skills have actually suffered somewhat as a result of not interacting with people. And I think... Yeah, you you know, there's going to be this kind of adjustment period where people need to reacclimatize themselves to what it is to interact in a social way. Mm-hmm. And I think when we think about traveling, which is all about in the ideal way, putting ourselves out of our comfort zone and sure. having new experiences and learning new things, meeting new people, I think that's a factor. And it's really vital that, I mean, just from a very basic standpoint, that people are mindful of that mask wearing and that distancing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just because you're on vacation, if it's a vacation, doesn't mean that you can take a vacation from your manners and it doesn't mean you can take a vacation from your pandemic politeness. So it's really just start with that mask wearing. I love the fact that you are saying that mask wearing is politeness because I think it's the beginning middle and end of respecting other people because you have no way of knowing in most cases whether or not you have the virus. We know that asymptomatic people are the biggest spreaders. Uh, So to me, it has nothing to do with rights and everything to do with respect. So what do you do if, say, you're on an Amtrak train or you're on a plane and the guy opposite you ain't wearing that mask? Yes. So, so I, as you do, live in New York City, um, where we've grown very accustomed to, you know, I put on my shoes before I leave the house, I put on my mask, and it's just what you do. Uh, you go on a subway train, it might be baking at, a, you know, 98 degrees on the platform, you're wearing your mask. So um, I think we've, we've grown accustomed to that. But in other cities where the pandemic maybe didn't quite hit as hard as it did in New York, it's not um, as common a practice. But yet, when we're on mass transit, when we're on uh, an Amtrak train, when we're on an airplane, we know that the guidance from the train companies and the airlines is that you do wear that mask. So keep it on while boarding. There are exceptions for if you're if you're uh, having a meal and you're eating, of course, you can keep the mask on then. But as soon as you're done, that mask should come up. I think if you're someone who is around another person, a stranger and a fellow passenger who's not wearing the mask, there's only a certain point where you should feel like you need to be the pandemic police. Um, you know, do you think the person is acting in a deliberately unsafe manner or are they trying to make some kind of a statement by not wearing this mask? Or is it that the mask is simply just slipped off? Maybe they, you know, fell asleep against their, their window and uh-huh. the, the mask straps came off. So I think if, if it's clear that it's just an inadvertent slip up, I think a very nice, 
oh, I, you know, you know, oops, your looks like your mask might have slipped. I know that happens to me all the time. Should do the trick with somebody who's a considerate person. If right. the person's there to grandstand and make a statement, then really it's it's not. Especially if you got a six or seven hour flight, you yeah. don't want to engage with that passenger. I would have the flight attendant do that for you. And it's been interesting uh, in recent weeks. People have been kicked off flights for not wearing their masks. Delta has yeah. done that. JetBlue went a little too far. I think there was a two-year-old. There was a family of five, and the youngest oh. was two. And she kept pulling down her mask, and they finally escorted the whole family off the plane. Um, oh, wow. Which, to me, seems like a bit of overkill. But what do I know? We are speaking with Thomas Farley. He is also known as Mr. Manners. He's got a terrific podcast. Give the uh, info on the podcast again. Sure. The podcast is called What Manners Most. And you, Pauline, have been a guest um, <laughs> talking yes. about very, very, one of my favorite episodes. Um, so we just wrapped season one. Uh, I, I planned on launching this well before the pandemic and the topics were going to be anything but COVID. But given that we're all dealing with this, this new normal and it's presenting all sorts of etiquette challenges, we looked at everything from travel etiquette with you to relationship etiquette to um, uh, the history of etiquette um, and during other pandemics and yeah. what lessons we can draw uh, for our current situation so it's been a fascinating journey and we'll kick off season two starting in mid-september yeah it's been very interesting it's a it's a great series so one of the other things i wanted to ask you was uh, there's been some interest i mean a lot of people feel that people should not be traveling right now and there's there's a a lot of truth to that 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 when you Mm -hmm. travel you could be spreading the disease but i think there are places ways to responsibly travel And uh, so how do you deal with social media around travel? If you see somebody who wants to brag about their latest vacation, should you do that? Mm -hmm. Should you be that person? And and how do you respond if you know that person? Sure. Yeah. So. Yeah, so so as as we know, there are many states that have higher rates than others. And if you happen to be traveling to one of those states and then returning back to your own home state or vice versa, you are supposed to self-quarantine. And although the authorities in different states have gotten a little bit more efficient at uh, providing notifications at airports with forms that have to be filled out or text messages that are sent, even highway signs that say, you know, arriving from out of state, please call 511. Um, much of this still really is on the honor system. There's yeah. just simply no way for this to be to be policed. So it's, I on, think, it's important to be honorable then. I'm sorry, I have to cut you off. We have to say goodbye. Yes, be honorable. Yes, so be honorable. Much. Thank you so much for appearing on The Travel Show, Thomas. My pleasure, Pauline. Thank you for having me on. Welcome back to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, here with my dad, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, we have Sunny Fitzgerald. She is a travel writer currently based in Hawaii who has a great article in The Washington Post. It's titled, Out Hiking? Here's Why You Should Leave Those Stones Unstacked and Those Stacks Untouched. So, I thought this article is so helpful. Welcome to the travel show, Sunny. 
Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, good to speak with you. So what are those stones? Uh, give us, for, for people who haven't hiked in 20, 30 years, what are they? What, what are we discussing here? So those set stones that are often called cairns, um, a Gaelic word, um, it's essentially they're rock stacks or piles of stones but made by humans, right? So they're not the naturally occurring ones. Um, and they're often used to communicate a message, uh, sometimes used for decorative or meditative purposes, but primarily used for waymarking trails, for example, or cultural purposes, um, historic sites, indicating burial sites, things like that. So these aren't any special kinds of stones. They're just special in that they are stacked up and you'll often see them by the side of a trail. Why would somebody, say, create their own? Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of reasons I think that people do it. Um, culturally, there are reasons that people use them for certain functions. But there are also people who are just um, building them um, as a meditative practice, for example, um, trying to balance them perfectly um, is <laughs> sort of a, for meditation um, sure. or for a way to connect with nature. Also, people do it if they're bushwhacking, right? If they're creating their own trails, which is a no-no. <laughs> Correct, yeah. So some people do use them if they're going off trail um, and they they want to find their way back, so they might build their own. Um, or if, if they get lost, they might um, build one if they're trying to find their way. So basically, if, they, if they've gotten off trail and they think that someone else may find that that part of the trail difficult to navigate as well. They might think that a Karen could be helpful um, for the next person. Why is that wrong? Why is that a bad idea? So there's a few reasons why um, this can be a problem. Um, first of all, it's a, there's a risk in it. Um, if you're building Karen, someone else may follow them. So if you've built them just for decorative purposes, for example, um, and somebody else follows those, they may end up off trail, which is dangerous for them. Um, and then if you build them for yourself when you've left the trail and you want to find your way back, someone may move them. If they, um, they may move them or build their own, and you might get lost that way as well. Um, so there's the risk to, your, to yourself. There's also the risk to the environment. Um, when you're building them, you're disrupting the environment that you're in, whether that's by picking up the stones and there might be um, creatures living under them or even yeah. endangered species living there. Um, and then as well, you may be trampling the environment if you've left the trail. We are speaking with Sunny Fitzgerald. She has a fabulous article on the Washington Post site called Out Hiking. Here's why you should leave those stones unstacked and those stacks untouched. And I thought it was, I had no idea that sometimes rangers will arrange the stones in stacks to protect small insects or seedlings or, or other parts of nature, Right. Yeah, so it's interesting. In, in Hawaii, when I um, spoke with a uh, park ranger here, um, the, there are places where um, the, they're actually building them purposely, right? That um, Some places for waymarking, but then building them purposely to protect um, endangered species that may need to shelter there and when they're seedlings or babies. Um, and so, yeah, disrupting them can also um, expose those to, to the natural elements and perhaps kill them. Now, you said briefly at the beginning that these stones also can have a cultural significance. What cultural significance would they be? Would that be? So depending on where you are in the world, um, here in Hawaii, uh, there's so many different purposes for different various stacks of stones. And as 
you know, when you look at them, you may not know what they are, but locally, um, Native Hawaiians may be using them, for example, to mark a fishing spot or um, to indicate a, a certain sacred site. Um, there's so many different cultural purposes that it really is dependent on um, the region that you're in. So um, it, it, it varies pretty widely. You said in the article, and I, I found this kind of stunning, that sometimes these stones could be a grave marker. And so by disturbing them, it's like kicking down a headstone. Yeah, that's right. So in a lot of cultures, um, and, and you know, these stone stacks have been used by humans throughout history. And so um, there are many cultures that do use them um, to indicate burial sites. So yeah, essentially, if you knocked one over, or if you took a stone from one that was already established, you could be disrupting either traditional knowledge or a burial site, as you mentioned. Yeah, something nobody wants to do. So don't touch it. It's so interesting. I mean, now in these pandemic times, we're so used to not touching things. We think we're out in nature. We can just touch, touch, touch. But if it's created by humans, it's probably there for a reason. So you don't want to touch it. Well, it's a fabulous article. Once again, we've been speaking with Sonny Fitzgerald, the author of Out Hiking. Here's why you should leave those stuns unstacked in those Stacks Untouched in the Washington Post. Thank you so much, Sunny, for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. My pleasure. Thank you. back to the Fromer Travel Show. For the, you know, you may notice that we started this hour talking about what a great city New York is, that it is not dying, that it is still worthwhile visiting. I talked about my extraordinary visit to the Metropolitan Museum. I've also had extraordinary culinary experiences here because we have the greatest uh, collection of restaurants in the United States. And now it's even more fun because you're eating out at these adorable outdoor cafes. They've actually built wooden structures that you can now eat in. And I went to a fabulous place called Oiji, which is a Korean restaurant where I had the best dessert in Manhattan, maybe in all, all, all of the boroughs. It, it's uh, potato chips dipped in honey on top of vanilla ice cream. Oh my goodness. Now you can make your own. It was so extraordinary. Uh, so when the quarantines are lifted, don't believe what you're seeing on the news. New York is still so worthy of visiting with our Broadway theaters, which will eventually be reopened with our extraordinary restaurants, with our museums that have the greatest riches in all of the Americas. That's not going away. And, and a lot of other things are staying great here, too. OK, I want to also tell you about a contest that we are doing right now to another fabulous part of the United States. I'm talking about the wine country of California. We have partnered with uh, a company that uh, sells airfares and they're going to be giving away free airfare to the Napa Valley. Uh, but that free airfare is going to be available for two years. So you don't have to do it right away if you win this contest. You have two, two years uh, to go to the Napa Valley 
but they're also throwing in very chic luggage from Rome, R-O-A-M luggage, a very, very wonderful luggage, some of which has uh, the ability to charge your cell phone on the luggage, really high tech, great stuff. You're going to get guidebooks from us to the Napa Valley and Sonoma. Uh, You're going to get gift certificates to go to local restaurants and shops. So to get involved in this contest, get out your pen. You want to go to fromers.com slash contest. Pretty easy. So that's www.fromers, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S dot com slash contest. We hope that you will try and win And as I said at the beginning of this segment, we also are hoping you'll come back to New York City. I have a dog in this fight. I've lived here my entire life. Uh, You've lived here your entire adult life, right, Dad? Yeah, I've lived here for almost all my life. But your entire adult life you've lived here, except when you were in the Army. Uh, And I think you'd agree there's no better place to visit. We have such wonderful people, such incredible arts and culture. Uh, We're very welcoming, I promise. Uh, Come visit us. All right, we have to say goodbye for this hour. We thank you so much for listening. To those who are traveling, a hearty... We wish you a hearty bon voyage. 